0: Back in September, I started a study in Exodus chapters 24 and 25 and 26 and 27 and 28, specifically on the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And I found it to be a very rich and really enlightening study, and I'm really eager to share it with all of y'all this morning. And... This is kind of a study that is kind of like job security. If I'm called on to teach again, I've got something else I can go to automatically because I really thought that, well, I can do this all in one one Sunday morning. And as I got to banging away on the computer and preparing this message, I decided, well, I've got about four or five messages here, not just one. So... Before we jump right into Exodus, I wanted to look very briefly as a reminder to why the reasons are Christians should be studying the Old Testament. And I know we don't have an issue here in this body, but I recently have been speaking with and coming to contact people that don't think that the Old Testament applies anymore at all. So I just want to briefly uh, talk about, first of all, Matthew 5.17. Jesus told us, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And Paul wrote in our, one of our really nice verses, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we're not studying in all of God's word, this implies that we're not complete. Romans 15:4, Paul writes again, for whatever things were written before, which was the Old Testament scriptures, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Boy, do we have hope. All right, if you would open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24, the very last verses of 24, and then we're going to go into Exodus 25. But starting in 24, verses 15 through 18, Scripture says, Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This passage is the setting for the time that Moses went up onto that mountain into the presence of God to receive the two stone tablets that he was going to take back to the nation of Israel. The Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 31, 18 says, And when he had finished speaking with them, the he being God speaking with him, Moses, upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. (coughs) Then we read from Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, Blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. Oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. These passages and the other ones we're going to look at this morning call attention to the exact detail of the dimensions Moses was to follow in constructing the tabernacle and all of its contents. And the reason it had to be exactly according to what God said is because this was a picture of the tabernacle that exists perfectly in heaven, and God wanted it done right. It's to show us how seriously God takes worshiping him and all of his people who come before him. So we need to study the scriptures and make sure that we come before him rightly. God desires to be worshipped, but only according to his ways, which fortunately for us, he's told us about in his word. And part of what we're going to look at this morning. During Israel's time in the wilderness between the exodus from Egypt and the settlement in the promised land, the people dwelled in tents. Sometimes they were referred to as booths. Therefore, as a fulfillment of God's promise to dwell among them during this time, the Lord had the Israelites build a tent or tabernacle in which he would reside. This tent was much like the ones in which the Israelites dwelt, only larger and much more prettier, even beautiful. Now this tabernacle, a portable tent sanctuary, would serve as Israel's place of worship for about the next 400 years or so. And first of all, we see that God told Moses to make an appeal to the people of Israel to collect everything needed for the sanctuary and its furnishings. I thought it was interesting that we see that God didn't give a command to give. Rather, he he appealed that people give. God only sought those gifts from those people whose heart moved within them the new american standard tells us he only got wanted those gifts that people wanted to give he only wanted those people who wanted to give to give those gifts this speaks of us to us of the delight god takes in worship from a free giving loving heart We are commanded to worship God, but he loves the worship that comes freely, not out of obligation, even though we are obligated to worship him, and we should. This design of the tabernacle, which Moses was to build exactly according to God's plans, is, like I said, based on the heavenly tabernacle in heaven. Hebrews 8, chapter 8, tells us that. God was giving them a picture of eternal realities. And it's an eternal reality for us as well. And those who approached him, God by faith, would get a glimpse of heaven. Would somebody, if you've followed along in chapter 25, would somebody take verses 10 through 16 and read those, please? And they'll also be up here. They shall construct an ark of Casey Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside now. You shall overlay it. And you shall make a gold molding around it. And you shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side And you shall make holes of a wood and overlay them with gold you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark; they shall not be removed from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you then thank you Tom we read just read above that God didn't begin with the directions for the structure of the tabernacle itself Rather, he started with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, being the very first thing, I don't think we have to be brain surgeons to realize that this is probably very important. And I would say that the Ark of the Covenant is probably one of the most important things that was to be housed inside the tabernacle. Because that's where God said he was going to come and reside, in the midst of Israel. The Lord promised to meet his people at the Ark above its mercy seat. And when it was not being transported, the ark was placed in the most holy place within the tabernacle, or the Holy of Holies, where God made his presence most felt under the Old Covenant. Tom just read to us that the ark was a rectangular box made of acacia wood measuring 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. And because the ark would be a sign of the royal divine presence, it was to be covered with gold, befitting of God's sovereign majesty. Here's another rendition of the ark. Because, amazingly enough, there are no Polaroid shots left of the originals. When the ark was resting, its bottom did not touch the ground, probably to emphasize its being set apart to the Lord. It had four golden legs, each of which had an attached gold-cast ring. It was through these four rings that gold-covered poles were kept in order to transport the ark to avoid being touched by human hands once it had been completed and consummated consecrated for the Lord. God commanded that the poles once placed in the rings were to never be removed. I can only surmise that and it is only my opinion, it might be yours too, I don't know, that God said that so that there wasn't constant wear and tear on the gold. You know, if every one of you ever had gold jewelry, if it's true gold, it's pretty soft. I can only imagine that's that's the purpose. That and they were to always transport the ark first before them when they moved. So the ark was always ready to move because God had plans. As Tom read, Moses was to place the testimony in the ark. And when I read Exodus 31, 18, that scripture told us that this testimony was the two tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. Those commandments written by the very finger of God. Now this close association of the ark where God was present with the law should tell us that we can't separate the presence of God from the moral will and the moral law of God. Meaning that if we we don't have a desire to follow the Lord's commands we're probably not in a right relationship with him. After all, remember what Jesus said if you love me You will obey me. Would somebody else read these verses, 17 through 22? You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered ends of the mercy seat make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat and verse 20 through 23 <laughs> Continue. Could you yeah and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Thank you, Carolyn. These verses describe the portion of the ark known as the mercy seat. This was a lid for the ark, but it was different than the ark itself because it was not first made out of wood. It was made from solid gold, very much more special. And then it was placed on top of the ark. The lid was adorned, like Carolyn read, by figures of two cherubim that stood on its surface. Facing one another with their wings extended, overshadowing the ark. We don't know exactly what the cherubs or the cherubim look like, but the book of Ezekiel gives us the most detailed description of them. He tells us that the cherubim who attended the Lord's throne had features like four, including four faces, one each of a human, an ox, an eagle, and a lion with four wings. What's not clear is whether Ezekiel's description is an actual description of cherubim, or his words should be taken more symbolically. Either way, it seems the cherubim are powerful, supernatural creatures with wings that guard access to God's presence. The Hebrew word for mercy seat comes from the words that mean atonement or reconciliation and is derived from a root word meaning cover. God pledged to Moses to meet his people through the high priest at the mercy seat, which was the place of atonement for reconciliation and covering. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest sprinkled blood of the sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish, on the mercy seat to atone for the nation's sins. Every time I think about that, I can't stop but think about the perfect lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus, our Savior. Since the lid and the winged cherubim covered the ark and the Ten Commandments within, the idea is that the blood of the atoning sacrifices sprinkled on the mercy seat covered Israel's violations of the law. Shielding the people from God's wrath. And if we look quickly at Romans 3, verses 25, 23 through 30, 25, we'll read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, To demonstrate his faith, his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. This word, propitiation, that we just read, uses the Greek word for mercy seat. The mercy seat, in describing the work of Christ, means that Jesus is the true mercy seat. God met his people at the mercy seat. At the pure sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God meets us. Jesus is that true mercy seat. His blood covers our sin, satisfying the wrath of God. In him alone, we meet God unafraid. I can't help but think of the song that goes in Christ alone my hope is found he is my light, my strength my song this cornerstone, this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what deep depths of peace when fears are stilled when strivings cease my comforter my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone. Wow, who are we? The tabernacle was, by God's instructions, set in the very middle of the camp of Israel. All of the twelve tribes were to assemble their, their tents around the tabernacle. God was in their midst and in the very middle where he was to ever be before them. Every time they arose and before they went to bed, they saw the the tabernacle. Anytime they exited their tents, they would see God's dwelling place in the very center of their life. We, today, cannot meet with the Lord unafraid unless our sin has been covered by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was an old covenant picture of this truth and informed the Israelites that a right relationship with God came at a cost. You know, you think about it. All of the animals that had to be sacrificed on a daily basis, in order for Israel to come to their God. All the blood. blood. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ has paid that price once and for all, never to be done again. And our wonderful, beautiful Savior sits at the very right hand of God, where he intercedes on each one of us on our behalf. Scripture tells us so. I want to finish with this quote. I had no idea how this would look up there. A.W. Tozer wrote, The greatest fact of the tabernacle was that Jehovah was there. A presence was waiting within the veil. Similarly, at the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence every time you come to pray come in prayer every time you stop to thank god you come into his presence only because jesus lived jesus died jesus was resurrected for all of us you and me praise him Father, it's unfathomable. I can't even think of your holy plan. Why me? Why us? All I know is your words are yes and amen, and all of your promises are yes and amen, and Jesus Christ, my Savior, thank you seem so little. Lord, help us today direct us, and guide us to realize that we are in your very presence because of you and because of your mercy and because of your love and your grace. We didn't deserve you. We don't deserve you. But you loved us anyway. Father, we thank you and we devote the rest of this morning to you. In Jesus' name, amen.